Thank you, Brenda, for that. That's how deep the Father's love for us. We've been talking about family values according to God here in the month of September. Yeah, today's our final message where hopefully we'll bring it all together to provide some practical assistance for you and your relationships. And our text passage today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 18. It's one of my all-time favorite passages. If you're physically able, would you stand as we have the reading today? We'll begin there in verse number 17. Genesis 18, at verse number 17. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord, to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are in, therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked. And that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, that I will spare all the place for their sakes. Let's pray. Father, would you work now today as we talk about the legacy that we leave to the next generation. No matter where we're at in our lives today, we should be thinking about that. Whether we are married, even whether or not we have children, we have a legacy that we leave to the next generation people that we invest in, family members, co-workers, neighbors, children here at Centennial, there are people that we invest in every day of our lives. And so I pray that you would help us to understand from this passage how we could be more consistent, how we could follow through in these investments and guide us now and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Would you listen to this song? You know, Jesus Christ is our only hope. That's our source of hope and our strength. And um, that's what this song is about. Please listen carefully to the words because they're, they're beautiful. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest doubt and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, 
Feels so still when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for Every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. For there is no other name under heaven by which thou must be saved. body lay, light of the world, by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me. The precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck. Or calls me home here in the power of Christ. I stand. Amen. Thank you, Kathy, for that message and song. Well, we look at this passage and we find such an interesting thing where God is asking a question about what he should reveal to a man on the earth. And so I start with 
this thought for you. If God, who knows everything about the future, would today write down the legacy that you will leave on this earth, what would he write? That's a pretty big starting thought. I mean, we have an idea, I think, of what we'd like our legacies to be. But this is God himself speaking in the Trinity about Abraham's future. I want you to look at it again in verse 17. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. This is as huge as a legacy gets. Paul told the believers at Rome that Abraham is the father of faith for both Jews and Gentiles. And from his lineage of faith would come the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, Redeemer of mankind. That is immeasurable when it comes to a legacy. When we think of the faith of Abraham or of anyone else, it's sometimes easy for us to describe that faith in general terms. Wow, that's big faith, or what a great faith that person has. Today, though, I want to look at the specifics in regards to Abraham's faith and remember these statements about the condition of Abraham's faith. They come not from Abraham himself. These statements about Abraham's faith come directly from God. And so they have some pretty potent words coming out here. We start by talking about showing the way of the Lord. Showing the way of the Lord. The notes are provided in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along with us. Look at verse number 19. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. Now think of this once more from God's perspective. He says, I know Abraham. I know that he'll lead his family to keep the way of the Lord. Abraham has a real relationship with his creator. Belief is not just a theory to him. It's a reality. He truly accepts me, this is God speaking, as Lord of his life. And see, God knew that Abraham would lead his family to faith. Keep in mind that this was before Abraham even had his promised son Isaac. God said this about him before his child was ever conceived. Bringing his family to the knowledge of God was the foundation of that faith. Contrast that with what you see in the next chapter. As Lot hears the news that Sodom will be destroyed. Look at chapter 19, verse number 12. And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides? Son-in-law, my sons and my daughters, and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place, for we will destroy this place. Because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Look at verse 14. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. The Lord will destroy this place. Who's the Lord? 
They mocked Lot, their father-in-law, when he expressed God's name. When he expressed what God would do, there was mockery involved. And his sons-in-law and his daughters would be destroyed in the city of Sodom. You know, if people in our relationships are asking the question, who is the Lord? Then we haven't effectively shown the way of the Lord to them. If people that we know, that we intimately deal with, that we have good relationships with, if they don't even know that we authentically believe that Jesus Christ is the God of the universe, then there's a problem. Our faith does not measure up. Our faith is a talk-about subject, but not a live subject. You don't understand, Pastor. I, I have a deep faith in God, but it's more of a closet faith. I'm not an evangelist. Some people say, well, I'm a private person. I don't really express my faith out loud. That's weird because you express all the other things you do out loud. Right? You don't mind having a Cabela's bumper sticker on your vehicle. You don't mind wearing your favorite team's jersey. You have a Dutch Bros sticker. You practically get in a fight with your brother-in-law every Thanksgiving about politics. And who the best first baseman from the 1970s was. But you won't even whisper God's name. Something tells me that God wouldn't say verse 19 of chapter 18 about some of us. I just have this hunch that God would not say, for I know him. That he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord. Why is it that kids grow up with negative ideas toward God? Even kids who go to church, even kids whose parents go to church, grow up with negative ideas about God, sometimes about pastors, sometimes about Sunday school teachers, sometimes about leaders in churches. Why do they grow up with those ideas? Well, it's because of their parents. Why is it that kids grow up with the idea that the church just wants your money? Right? You, say, you hear that one a lot. Church just wants your money. But they don't ever say that Walmart just wants your money. Or McDonald's just wants your money. We're not going there, kids. When McDonald's just wants your money. Or Blake Shelton just wants your money. Or the mortgage company just wants your money. Well, why do kids have an impression of a negative way of giving to God when they don't have a negative impression about any of their entertainment venues, or where they buy their jeans, or where they buy their shoes. It all comes from our parenting. It all comes from how we proceed. We were watching the Boise State game last night, regrettably. We were in the second quarter, I think, and we had taped it or fast-forwarded all this commercials and stuff. And my son Cody, is he in here? God bless him. Punch him in the mouth right now. I would never do that. Um, he started ragging on our team. Every time they made a mistake, he'd go, ha, ah, figures. Those guys are horrible. Quarterback's horrible. The running back's horrible. He can't even hold the ball. So finally I said, get out. You can't be in this room anymore. You're not a Bronco fan. And then we chuckled later and we, we made up and things were good. Once I figured out how horrible they were. <laughs> took, 
took three quarters from me. It only took two for him. But you know, we pass things down to our kids about our opinions, about our likes, our dislikes. Do you know why your kids don't talk to certain people at church? Because you bag on those people on the way home from church. Right? They won't even walk up and shake hands with certain people in this church because you've been negative about that person. I'm not talking specifics. Everybody's looking around like, who did it? I don't even know. I don't even know. I'm just throwing it out there. The negative ideas that we have come from somewhere, and often it's from our parents initially. And so these negative ideas come up in life. Why is it that kids grow up even thinking that the money that they have is theirs? Well, they got it from you. If you don't regard God as the owner of your stuff or as the Lord of your life, then they won't either. And leading your family to faith is not a dotted line you sign one time and you're done. It's a daily effort. It's self-correction again and again and again. And God knew Abraham's heart. And I'm sure you know this, but Abraham didn't have one verse of Scripture to guide him. Abraham didn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of him. And yet he still managed to be the father of faith. Because he truly, truly believed that God is God. And he didn't care who knew it. God could trust him to lead. So can God trust us to show the way of the Lord. But then we see this second part. I want you to see this. Acting out justice and judgment. Acting out justice and judgment. Now look in verse 18 again. I know him that he will keep his he will keep he will command his children, sorry, and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. So God says this about Abraham. They shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. And we get into this idea now that real faith is exhibited by real works. Real faith is not just a byword, it's not just a term, it's a lifestyle. And for Abraham, it was that they would do justice and judgment. People who authentically believe in God don't just do it in theory, they do it in practice. Now what if I told you, you know what, I love fly fishing. I love it. I've got fly fishing books. I bought one of those fancy fly fishing reels from the sportsman's warehouse. I got the big old long pole that'll touch the ceiling in here. I love fly fishing. You say, well, how often do you go? I've never been. Actually, that's true for a lot of fly fishermen. They, they buy all the stuff, but they never do it. Or they buy all the stuff and then try it once and they can't stand it. And so they go back to the other kind. So if you're a fly fisherman, thumbs up to you. That's, that's some tough stuff. But you know, we don't really live our normal lives that way unless we're trying to put on a show, unless we're trying to impress people, unless we're putting fake things on our Facebook we like to live in reality. If we say that we like something, we actually like it. If we say that we do something, we actually do it. But when it comes to our faith, we struggle with this. We struggle with living out God's truth. 
If you're a born-again believer, you are a descendant of the same faith that Abraham had. And this verse tells us that Abraham's faith descendants do more than claim God's truth as supreme. They actually live God's truth. The way we treat each other in the home is a result of our faith or lack of faith. The way that we act at the workplace, the neighborhood, as citizens, all of it comes back to our faith. And there are times when it's easier for us to ignore evil rather than address it. Whether it's in the family or the city or the church. You've all heard the Edmund Burke quote before, The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And when we see injustice and look the other way, we're not walking in the steps of Abraham. I'll show you what I mean. Look at Genesis 14. Genesis 14. So we're going back just a few pages. And I'll set this up for you. Abraham's nephew, Lot, was taken as a prisoner of war. And I want you to see what happened when Abraham heard the news here. So here we go, Genesis 14. Look down there at verse number 12. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre of the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abram. Uh, verse 14 is just stunning. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive... He armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought, brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods, and the women also, and the people. I want you to think about this for a second. If you know the story, Abraham and Lot had just had a split. Their herdmen were fighting. And Abraham walked outside with Lot in chapter 13 and he said, Lot, I want you to look wherever you want. You can go north, south, east, west. You pick wherever you want to go. You can have it. Let's not fight anymore. Let's be brothers. And Lot lifted up his eyes. And you may remember he chose the plain of Sodom. And he moved his family that direction. And, and so now when he's been kidnapped from this place, Abraham could have easily said, that's not my problem. Lot moved to Sodom on his own. That's his deal. I hope it all works out for him. Instead, he armed his 318 trained servants. Don't you like the Bible's details? not generic. God gave you the details on this. 318. Not 320. 318. Trained servants and he went to right the wrong. And by the way, when the battle was over, we find that Abraham was the first person in the Bible to give tithes to God. He modeled justice and judgment and God trusted that his family would act out their ethics in generations to come. He was an ethical man. He loved justice and judgment. But then that brings us to the balance of this. The third part, which is desiring mercy for others. Desiring mercy for others. 
it seems like it would be a tough balance to have judgment and mercy at the same time. It just seems like that would be tough. And yet we find that Jesus himself was full of grace and truth. And that righteousness and peace kissed each other through Jesus Christ, the Psalms say. So he's the perfect balance of both. We saw Abraham's rescue of Lot. Do you notice in that last verse we read that he rescued some other people too, not just Lot? Including a group of women who had been kidnapped from their homes. And so yes, it was an act of justice to reclaim these people, but it was also an act of mercy. And now, in the original passage, maybe 15 years later, Abraham has heard the horrible news that God will judge Sodom for their sins. And he goes before God and asks him repeatedly to save the place, to withhold judgment. When Abraham became aware of God's intentions for Sodom, his heart cried out for the city and its inhabitants to be spared. And we find in God's word that loving mercy for the people around us is one of the highest traits of faith. It's hard to have good judgment without becoming judgmental. But that's what the Lord wants from us. He wants us to love mercy at the same time as we're doing justice and walking humbly before our God. You know, in the New Testament, the Bible says that all believers have spiritual gifts. And Romans 12 lays them out for us. And in fact, some people in this room, you have the gift of mercy. And it's an actual spiritual gift that God's given you. And when somebody around you gets hurt, you feel so strongly for them and you feel so negatively toward people who hurt them. Other people have the gift of prophecy and the, the gift of administration and the gift of giving and there are seven spiritual gifts. But you know, the trait of being merciful and loving mercy is not just for the people who have the gift of mercy. Okay, just let me give you another example. The gift of giving is not designated to people just so they would be the only ones to give. Right? God wants us all to be givers of, of our resources, of our time, of the talents He's bestowed on us. He wants us all to give. Those who have the gift of giving have an actual spiritual gift that enables them to take resources and give them toward a need again and again and again in a huge way. And not all givers can do that. Not all givers see that need. But the gift of giving people do. And so, when it comes to loving mercy, it's for all of us. It's for the people who have the gift of mercy, but it's for all of us to love mercy. And Abraham loved mercy for these people. Abraham, I want to tell you how he could do it, how he could love mercy for others. It's because he had the right view of himself. Look back at chapter 18. We read to verse 26. Now let's read one verse further. One verse further. Genesis 18, 27. And Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Abraham had a good view of himself. When we get too high a view of self, we don't love mercy for others. 
we feel like sometimes that we are good enough to earn our blessings. And though deep inside we know it's not true, we begin to sense that we deserve God's mercy. Because our intentions are good and our motives are pure. When I feel like God owes me mercy, I won't love God's mercy for others. But when I realize that I am a sinner who deserves nothing but God's wrath, I can have the right view. And then I can love mercy for my prodigal son or my prodigal daughter. Or I can have mercy for my nephew that has moved his family to Sodom. Instead, we get this. If we're not careful, this is our mentality. He'll get what he deserves. He'll get what he deserves. When truthfully, we don't want what we deserve. See, when somebody speeds up by us on the highway, and then a few miles later we see lights, and we see that they've been stopped, oh, he got what was coming to him. But when we speed by people on the highway, we want mercy. Right? We don't want those lights to show up. We don't want anybody to stop us. And when we get away with it, it's not a big deal. And even when we don't, what do we tell the officer? Oh, I just lost track of the speed. Right? I lost track of the speed. My cruise control broke. Right? I set it for 65 and it was on 82. How in the world did it happen? My accelerator got stuck. You know, we've got all these things because we don't want judgment. We don't want what's coming to us. But we want them to get what's coming to them. And it's this whole idea of loving mercy tied in with another word that's tough for us, forgiveness. Many times we don't want to forgive a person in a relationship because we feel like that person needs to get what he deserves. We feel like that person needs to get what she deserves. But when it comes down to it, again, I just want to say this again. We don't really want what we deserve, which is death and eternal hell. We don't want that. And so we seek selective forgiveness. Yes, unforgiveness for me. Yes, unforgiveness for you in certain situations. But no unforgiveness for you when I'm the one you hurt. That is the definition of righteousness for all liberals. Right? They don't want right and wrong for anybody unless they get hurt. Unless my kid's the one who got kidnapped. Unless my kid's the one who got hurt. And then, watch out. Wrath is coming down. You know, it's always interesting in life who we love mercy for. It's easy to love mercy for the person we never met in another country who's having a hardship. And we have telethons, and we have animals on TV that they show that are abused, and oh man, those touching commercials. But when it comes to your brother-in-law who stole your tools and never gave them back... Do you love mercy for that guy? Did I steal, by the way, David, where are you? Did I steal any of your tools? Just say that before I preach it. We, 
we struggle with this. This forgiveness thing for people we're in relationship with or extended relationship with. And it passes down to our kids. You know why kids in their young 20s are bitter, resentful, demeaning, cynical? That's how they grew up. That's how they grew up. They had a mom or a dad or both who always played the blame game and was never willing to forgive. And Abraham didn't model that. He modeled loving mercy. When I was a kid, one of the first video game consoles was called Intellivision. Yeah, it was like about the same time as Atari, maybe a year or two after. And it had some primitive games on it like Pong and bowling and baseball and tennis and some Donkey Kong uh, rip-off, Pac-Man maybe. But it also had this game called Burger Time. Burger Time. Now, I saw a couple people shake your head. This is pretty rare that anyone would know Burger Time. Burger Time was this outstanding game where you'd run around and these little guys are chasing you. And if you could get it timed right, the whole bun dropped all at once. Like bottom bun, burger, tomato, lettuce, top bun, and you would get extra points. It was like ding, 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 and all of a sudden your score would just shoot through the roof. You guys are really interested in this. This is the big, big time here. Burger time is the name of the game. Burger time. And my dad, for some reason, he wasn't a big video game guy, but he really got into that game. And for quite a while, he would beat me every time that we ever played. But then my young brain started catching up. And I began to beat him once in a while. Now, when he would get especially frustrated at being beaten by a sixth grader, he would accidentally, accidentally, hit the reset button (laughs) on the game. Keyword, accidentally. Can I just tell you that the best thing some of you could do today for your relationship or your family unit is hit the reset button. The reset button is God's forgiveness. The reset button brings you back to a place where you can show 1 Corinthians 13 type love to each other. The reset button is forgiveness. And it's where you say, you know what? I'm not going to hold this against you anymore. I'm never bringing it up again. Let's reset it. And then you've got to keep your word. And you've got to decide every day that you're not going to hold this dead over someone. Again and again and again. That's loving mercy. That's forgiveness. And boy, it's tough. But you know what it leads to? It leads to this highest level of faith that we see in Abraham back in Genesis 18, which is, interceding for those you love interceding for those you love because Abraham loved mercy for Lot and his family and really even the people of Sodom he did something extraordinary you just don't find many passages in the Bible like this passage it happened with Moses it's happened in a couple of places but this is unique Abraham interceded with the supreme sovereign God for the lives of Lot's family. You know what? He did it face to face. Now, I'm not going to get too deep into this, but this in the Bible in Genesis 18 is what theologians call a theophany. 
theophany. This is where Jesus Christ appeared on the earth before he appeared in the manger. Okay, hope I can get that. He appeared as God. And he showed up at Abraham's door, if you read the whole chapter. And look at the last verse of the chapter. And the Lord went his way. As soon as he had left communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his place. So this is really unique. This is where Abraham stood and talked to the Lord face to face. It's so unique. I don't want to go too deep because I'm going to confuse somebody. You just don't find this very often in the Bible. And Abraham left to his descendants a legacy of intercession. He was willing to go to bat with God for the people he cared about most. And yet, on the other side of this, he had the faith to leave the outcomes up to God. That really is the ultimate level of faith. To speak to the one that controls outcomes and trust that he'll do the right thing. Verse 25 of chapter 18 encapsulates this faith. Look at this again. I read it earlier. I want you to see it. Genesis 18, 25. That be far from thee to do after this manner. He's telling this to God. To slay the righteous with the wicked. That the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. He looks God in the eyes and says, Shall not the judge of the earth do right? Wow. (laughs) You know what? God could handle it. See, most people take their complaints to other people. If you'll take them to God, He can handle it. He's actually the one who can do something about it. He's the one who actually controls outcomes. And instead of Abraham saying, okay, see you guys later. Thanks for letting me know about Sodom and going in the tent and saying to Sarah, Sarah, I can't believe that God would destroy Sodom with 50 righteous people in it. How unfair is God? He took it straight to God. And he said, you're the judge of the earth. You're going to do the right thing, right? You know, when negative things happen to us, sometimes we do it. It's natural for us to go directly to God in prayer and a journal and our thoughts and our heart and say, God, you didn't do the right thing. You messed up. It's hard for us to discern God's thoughts. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And so Abraham kept going, and he got him from 50 down to 40. Actually, he got him to 45, and then 40, and then 30, and 20, and got him all the way down to 10 righteous. This is the ultimate level of faith. He prays to God, but then he trusts the character and intentions of God. That is faith. In the most uncertain of times, once his intercession reached the low number of ten righteous by the end of the chapter, Abraham left the rest up to God. While we don't find his exact reaction to the destruction of Sodom, it never says how Abraham reacted to Sodom, we do know that his faith in God grew even more. 
he felt he could count on God's best intentions even more. Because not many years after, God told him to take his son, his only son Isaac that he loved, and offer him for a burnt offering at the top of Mount Moriah. Look at chapter 22. Big test of faith. Here God comes and says this to Abraham. Take your son. Go up to the mountain. Look how Abraham responded. Genesis 22 verse 3. And Abraham rose up early in the morning. You know how Abraham responded? He did what God asked him to do. He got up early in the morning. He got everything together. They went on a three-day journey, and they walked up the mountain, and you know the story, and it's so powerful of a story, where Isaac, a little boy, says, Dad, yeah, what do you, what do you need there, son? He said, Dad, we, we've got the, the fire, we got the wood, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And as Abraham looked down in his little boy's eyes, you remember what he said? And it took the most massive faith that you could ever have because he said, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. Knowing what God had asked him to do. And he took his little boy, his son, when they came to the place, and he bound him on the altar it's just your heart breaks to even think about it. And he took the knife. And the angel of the Lord said, hold up. Hold up there. This was a picture of what God does for humanity. This was a test of your faith. And there's a ram in the thicket. You know, sometimes God asks us to walk in faith. To trust that He has the best intentions for our life. To trust that He has good plans for our life. And instead of doing it, we recoil. We jump back and we say, God, you, you messed this up. You don't know what you're doing. I'm not going on that path. I'm not walking that way. And we run from the thing that would build our faith the most. And we clutch things in our lives that become more important to God. I'll tell you this, if God's not first place in your life, He soon may not even be in your top ten. Because really, if, if there's anything more important in your life than God, then everything will eventually become more important than God. And that leads to a pagan culture in your family where you live just like all the other people on the street and do all the same things that they do, but expect that somehow your kid's going to grow up to love Jesus because they learned a song at Sunday school. Expect that that VBS thing is really going to come through for you. You expect that that youth camp week that you made him go to in eighth grade, boy, that's really going to be powerful. Now, what's going to be powerful is what happened at that house. What's going to be powerful is the faith that was exhibited in your home when the outcomes that God laid out did not agree with your plans. 
didn't agree with what you thought should happen. Never in his wildest dreams did Abraham ever think that God had blessed him with this wonderful son Isaac so that he would have to take him up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. Not once. And there are things that come into our lives that we've never planned for. We've never even remotely thought were possible. And God asks us to step out in faith and trust His intentions. Hebrews 11. I I love what it says about Abraham in this verse regarding Isaac. It says, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead. And I'm not even sure we can fathom the depths of that kind of faith. So Abraham went boldly to God to intercede. But at the same time, he left the outcomes up to God. And that's where we are so often in our relationships. We're not in charge of outcomes. We wish we were. Sometimes we even get deluded into thinking we are in charge. But life soon tells us differently. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. All we can do is intercede for others and trust God's intentions. And that's faith. That's how you leave a legacy of faith. Abraham did it. How about you? Do you trust God's intentions for you and your kids and your grandkids are really what's best for them? My son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. What assurance. What an example for us today. Let's bow in prayer. As we consider this legacy that Abraham left, would you be willing to consider the legacy that you're leaving today? Where are you at on that path? Yes, we all have hopes and dreams of the legacy we'll leave, but are we actually walking the path that leads us there? Maybe God has spoken to you in a unique way today. And it could be that you need to intercede for a family member, a friend, a, a co-worker whose family is tearing apart, somebody in your extended family who's hurting, and you need to come before God like Abraham did and say, God, would you intercede? Would you, would you work? Would you move in this person's life? could be in your own family that you need to say, God, we've got to set the path right. We've got to lead by example. We've got to be consistent in the way we lead to do justice and judgment, to love mercy, to walk the way we should before God. Father, would you work today? I don't know what the needs are on hearts. There are parents and grandparents and great-grandparents in this room, but there are also young people. There are uncles, there are cousins, there are people in relationships who need a fresh touch and a fresh anointing from you. And I pray that you would renew hearts today as we take just a few moments to bring these needs and these thoughts before you and we intercede. Would you guide us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? As we stand, Miss Dewey is going to play an invitation hymn. You come to the altar to pray. You can kneel at your seat. You do what God wants you to do right now. Would you come?
as she plays.